We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I'm your host, Jethro Jones, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. This episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational, a professional development publisher serving as the global leader in combining both research and practice in all materials. Find timely PD publications to support yourself and your faculty by visiting them online at us.johncatbookshop.com. Great instruction gets students engaged. TeachFX equips teachers with the instructional strategies and job-embedded feedback they need to get students engaged in virtual or in-person classes. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com slash transformative principle. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am excited to have on the show today, Craig Randall. He is the creator of Trust-Based Observation, and you can find out more about him at trustbased.com. Craig, welcome to Transformative Principle. Thanks for having me on, Jethro. I'm really excited to have a chance to talk with you today. I'm excited to talk with you as well. You are taking this approach to classroom observations in a different direction. I'm excited to talk to you about that. Can you first start by identifying what's wrong with our current observation and evaluation protocols? Yeah, I'll start out by saying I think everything's been well intended. It's just not having the desired effect of improving teaching and learning. And so really, if we look at the standard model right now, where there's a once or twice a year pre-observation conference where we talk about what's going to be taught, and then we go and do an observation, and then the principal is supposed to give one to four ratings on or grades on an exorbitantly large number of pedagogical areas, and then have a follow-up conversation with teachers to give them feedback on that and offer suggestions for improvement. 
basically the results are saying that's not improving teaching and learning. And, and actually, while I was writing the book, the Gates Foundation had embarked upon a seven-year, $200 million research project to improve the quality of teaching, uh, improve learning outcomes and graduation rates through basically the development of a more robust evaluation observation process. And at the end of that, the RAND Corporation, who always comes in and evaluates these studies, came in and said that there really was no sustained improvement in teaching, learning, or graduation outcomes because of this. And then as I was writing the book, I discovered this man named Matt O'Leary, who's out of Great Britain, and I would say he's the predominant researcher in the world on observation and evaluation. And he's come up with all this qualitative research that said as soon as we start to evaluatively rate teachers, and by that I think they mean pedagogy, that teachers start to play it safe and they are less innovative and less creative in their practice. And so the way the current system works, people are cautious. I mean, if you're a teacher, technically you're being retained for your job depends upon your evaluation. And so they play it safe and play the game. And we talk about the dog and pony show or the hoop jump. And I don't know if that's necessarily always the case, but I think anytime we know something's coming ahead of time, we're going to put a little extra effort into it because that's just human nature. And then the result is we get these really polished lessons that end up being proficient, but lacking creativity and innovation. And therefore we're not seeing improved teaching and learning because of it. And so your approach strives to create that risk-taking and innovation and make it so that teachers feel safe doing that. The challenge with that is that when you try to focus on that, then people may say that other areas of pedagogy are going to go down if we're not paying attention to them because you measure what matters. So what's your answer to that? Well, I I don't think we're neglecting any areas of pedagogy. We're just changing the way that we observe and evaluate. Now, I will say that like in the template for the trust-based observations, there's nine areas that that we look at and we've tried to look at at Hattie stuff along with admittedly some subjective beliefs about what's most effective. But we also leave room on there to write about other things. But if you look at the research on on observations and observation templates, it says anytime we have more than nine or 10 areas on an observation form, observers start to lose the forest through the trees. And so they end up checking off boxes and not really noticing the teaching and learning. And so if we're in a position where we can create trust with our teachers so they feel safe, and one of the things that we always want our teachers to feel, and we always talk about it, is when we talk about risk-taking, we always say, if I go into your classroom and you're trying something new, and it just bombs, the next day you're going to get a congratulatory fist bump because you're trying new things and risk-taking. And when people take risks, they will improve. So I would say it's not really hindering or leaving anything out. It's actually giving teachers permission to try things. And we try things, we have a better chance of improving. Yeah, I felt like I had really arrived as a school leader when a teacher said, hey, I'm trying something new and I want you to do my evaluation observation. Mm during that time. And I thought, you're not afraid that that's going to make it tank. And she said, you know, it doesn't really matter. I already know I'm a good teacher. So if it tanks, that's fine. But I know that I want to see how it hits everything on that observation. And two, I want you to kill two birds with one stone. We've got to do the evaluation observation anyway. We might as well just do it at this time. And I thought, man, that teacher, one, is a rock star. And two, she really gets what it's about getting feedback about how to become a better teacher. And I want to say one quick thing about that, that piece you were talking about that observers just start checking boxes. And um, I was in a training one time and we were supposed to have documented 
something like every minute during a 30 minute observation. So if you didn't have at least 30 marks on there, you were doing your job wrong as the principal, which just goes back to this idea of well-intended, you know, you should be giving feedback and making observations, but really when it comes down to checking a box for the principal to get a certain number of tick marks on the form, and it's a checkbox for the teacher to just get it done and do a dog and pony show so that she knows she can be successful with the, the evaluation. And it really dehumanizes that whole effort. I mean, none of that has anything to do with improved teaching and learning. And I'm just going to go right. back and say, wow, what a cool moment that you had with that teacher. They were that they were that trusting. And you obviously did things to set that table for them. But if we can create that environment, then everyone's going to feel safer taking risk and we're going to improve. One of the most common conversations I have with teachers now when they know I'm writing a book or whatever, and and they're excited about observations because most teachers are frankly frustrated with the observation process and the fact that it does feel like a hoop jump, is that so many teachers now will say to me, I had my principal do the observation and they said, everything was really great, except I didn't see such and such pedagogy. So next time, can you do that so I can mark it off? And it's the same thing. It's like, why are we playing this game? Isn't it really supposed to be about improving teaching and learning? It just drives me crazy. Yeah. And serving the kids that are right there. Thank you. Very likely. It's not about that pedagogical strategy to meet the needs of the kids right there. They needed something else. That's why the teacher in her wisdom and experience said, I'm not doing that pedagogical strategy, right? Exactly. So then I have to manufacture something that doesn't fit the teaching. So then we can say that I've done what I'm supposed to do. It makes no sense. Teaching is craft and it's art both. And and it's as observers to think that we can just have this set of check boxes and no one would argue anything that's on Marzano or Danielson and indicator of good teaching when it's on that proficient or higher level. There's no question about that. But to think that you have to master all 60, some of those things to be a, a great teacher is absurd. There's, there's so many different ways that you can be a great teacher. One of the great things about trust-based observations to me is that we do 12 observations a week, these 20 minute observations, and we just keep cycling through cycling through, cycling through all year long, is that when you do that, you're in classes so much that you see excellence and you see so many different ways that teachers can be excellent. And and to pigeonhole into just this is excellent teaching is you're never going to create the best teachers that way. So let's talk about that actual observation protocol. 12 observations a week seems like a lot when many principals struggle getting in to any classrooms a day, let alone multiple. multiple. I mean, mean, you and I both know Justin Bader and he's Awesome has been doing this for a long time, and he's been saying for years that we need to get into at least 500 classrooms a year. So that's a ton of observations, and they're 20 minutes. What is What do those observations look like, and is that 12 observations per teacher per week? Because that seems like it, you might run out of time. No, <laughs> no, no, definitely not per teacher. You just, so basically we've got a spreadsheet and we divide them up by department and each spreadsheet is a department and you go through each teacher and you see what their classes are and you see what you've gone and haven't gone. And over the course of the year, you definitely ideally want to see your teachers in each of their classes. And you'd like to see them at some point in the beginning of a class, in the middle of a class. But beyond the basics of that, it's just Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you do three 20 minute observations And on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you have three reflective conversations each one of those days. So on Monday and Friday, it's really an hour a day. And on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, it's really two hours a day. So that's eight hours a week. But I think if you were to look at like what I was talking about at the beginning with the standard protocol, let's just say that's twice a year, where we have to sit down and have a pre-observation conference. 
and then we have to watch a teacher for a whole period, and then we have to write up our observation uh, results, and then we have a meeting with them. And if you were to balance out the time, I would argue that we're talking about pretty similar amounts of time. And then because, this because, is though how routine we function better is on routine because this is a routine every week. I'd actually argue that it's also easier to do because you're doing the same thing every week instead of like, oh, I got to get these in or I got to get these in or it's April and I've got 25 teachers I've got left to do. And, and so it, it is a commitment, definitely. But we also talk about ways that we can look at our and look at like, what might be more clerical? What might be things that could be taken off my plate and working with my administrative assistant office manager to do that, whether that's helping with email or where it might be. And we do build into the book like ways to try and, and into the model to lessen their time. Because really, if we're talking about principles and our time, we want to spend our time as productively as possible, which means to improve teaching and improve learning. And to me, there's no more powerful way than being in classes a lot. And so that's the model, really. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense. And people who have listened to this podcast know that I talk a lot about planning your week out and time blocking different things to happen. And I got to the point as a principal where I was basically spending all morning until lunchtime in classrooms with teachers, talking with teachers or observing or whatever needed to be done. But I wasn't in my office during the morning. The only time I wasn't in classrooms was when I had a district meeting to attend to. And that was the only time that I wasn't there. And that that turned into a really great way for us to have more conversations, provide better support to the teachers, provide better support to students, and really get out of doing all those things that have to be done as a principal that really are not all that important. And you're right, improving the teaching and learning really, it should be our focus day in and day out. Which then, if I can jump then into the reflective conversations, because really that's more where the magic happens, isn't in the observing, it's in the reflective conversation. And so, again, because it's all about trust and people being willing to take risks when they feel safe. Because it's, I mean, if you think about the vulnerability of teacher observation, what other job in the world has your boss come in to your so-called office, sit down, pop on a laptop and watch you do your job 30 minutes? I mean, like imagine if you were a... Uh, a barista and your boss walked in and sat behind the back counter and pulled up a chair and watched you and they had all these numbers of indicators. It's really, really a vulnerable process for teachers. And so to have empathy for that really, I think is important because as principals, sometimes we forget what it was like to teach and sometimes we forget how hard it was. And so everything that we do in the reflective conversation and starting with, we do the reflective conversations in the teacher's room. So it's in their space. I don't care whether you're 12 or you're 40, going to the principal's office still feels the same, like going to the principal's office. And so we do that in their room. We ask permission to do it. I've never been turned down. And we actually ask if we can sit beside them so they can look at our laptop as we're taking notes during the whole process. And so even sitting beside instead of across, it takes away that power differential. And then it always begins. If you think about the traditional one, I start telling you about what I saw. And this one, it's not about me, it's about you. And so it always begins with two questions. What were you doing to help students learn? And question number two is if you had to do over again, what, if anything, might you do differently? And so instantly, like reflection as a part of practice is clearly an expectation that everyone understands. And then teachers actually really, really like that you're asking about them 
and they're willing to talk about it. And there's some training sometimes that has to go on to get teachers to do that. But if you think if I go first, what's going to happen? The teacher's most likely going to mirror what I have to say. But this way, they're going to be able to talk about it. And then after we ask those questions, then we share what we noticed. And when I share, say share what we noticed, we mean the strengths that we observed. And because we don't rate that, we're not putting it with proficient, basic, advanced. We're just saying this is what I noticed. And it's amazing how much teachers appreciate just that you notice something in their practice. I'll see them get embarrassed. Teachers have flat out said, wow, no one's ever really shared these things with me before, which is a sad commentary on the current process. John Cat Educational supports high-quality teaching and learning by providing publications that are research-based, practical, and focused on the key topics proven essential in today's and tomorrow's schools. The latest John Cat publications include a book whose bold, transformative ideas amaze and infuriate people around the world, according to one reviewer, a title from Global Leaders in Curriculum Planning, Practice, and Retrieval, one book that says stop talking and start doing with regard to teacher well-being, and much more. These books, used by educators of all roles across North America and worldwide, amplify fresh, engaging voices with practical strategies to create transformative change. Learn more in our show notes at jethrojones.com slash podcast. During COVID, every teacher is a new teacher. That's why innovative school leaders are turning to TeachFX, whose professional learning platform doubles student engagement online or in person. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash transformative principle. I created a new podcast with my friend Frederick Lane called Cybertraps. We are exploring the myriad risks and adverse consequences that can arise from the use and misuse of digital devices and electronic communication tools. Please subscribe to the Cybertraps podcast, and if you like it, please give us a rating. Here's an excerpt from an interview with Eric Stevens on the value of identity and being ethical in our work with underserved populations. If I approach my research with the intention of helping a group of people, but I'm using the data that they themselves have created and have been replicated by their their own personal identity, replicated over and over and over and over, my research is already flawed ethically. Some people, that's not a big thing. For me, it was problematic because I didn't want to feel like I was exploiting people, but I still wanted to help. What I ended up creating was I wanted to understand the prison system at the language level across time um, and across space in the United States. Um, Basically, I wanted to understand if we send a person to prison, we're sending them to a correctional facility um, with correctional officers, and we give them handbooks to say, hey, this is what you should be doing. What I wanted to answer was at the language level with the technical documents that we hand to um, an inmate, what are we correcting them to? To what standard are we asking them to be at the language level? Check out more from this interview at cybertraps.com slash seven. But then... As part of the process, and we're new to the model, for at least the first three visits, we don't offer suggestions. Let's talk about 
with the strengths and what we see and ask those questions. And for a couple of reasons, uh, one, we want to build trust. But two, if you think about when you're new to school, but even if I'm not new to the school and I'm in the school, but I'm starting a new way of doing it, why not say, let's take a step back and give this teacher a new look. And I'm not going to take any judgments on you. I'm just going to come and look at you and take the time to really start to get to know you as a teacher. And then one of the really amazing things when I first started doing it, and really the reason that I first started like not offering suggestions was partially because I was brand new and wanted to be liked. And then two, that sense of it felt arrogant for me to do it so soon. But the amazing thing that ended up happening was teachers before I even had a chance to say, would say, okay, 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 but what can I get better at? And then you already know you're somewhere in a good spot when teachers are asking to get better at. Yeah, that's like a a secret power of principles, by the way, that if you find a teacher who says, what can I do to get better, then that's where they're really looking for that feedback. They're really looking for a suggestion. And I would say, until someone asked me that twice, I, I wouldn't give any suggestions of what they could do better anyway. I've gone down that path and I've offered suggestions. And in my last school, I just didn't do that. I just noticed the strengths. I really like how you said that because that's really what I did. I noticed the strengths and I noticed when somebody didn't have a strength in a particular area and I found who did and I just complimented them more. And eventually they said, you know what? I'm really good at that. Let me take that off your plate to the other person, which was so stinking awesome. And what made that so cool was that the person who was weak felt like that was such a help to them. And the person who was strong felt like she could do more of the stuff she loved. And it was like a match made in heaven. You're just saying such great things that just align so well with what it does. Because one of the other great things about being in classes so much is you really start to see who's really, really good at what. And so as part of an effort to make it comprehensive, we directly tie professional development to the process as well. And so teachers at the beginning of the year, even though we don't rate them, there is a ratings rubric and teachers will self-assess on the trust-based observation form, and then they'll make their annual action research big goal based on that. And then we have professional development communities for those nine areas of pedagogy that we have. And then because we've discovered who's really good at what, we have those teachers lead the professional development communities or facilitate those professional development communities. And so then when it does come time for them to say they want to get better at something and you feel like it's the right time. And I will say that when somebody asked me that before the first three times, I just say, you know what, I'm still getting to know you. So you're right on by saying, let's just wait. There's no rush on that. But because you've discovered that, then you're able to tap into that. And then not only are people, when it does come time to offer suggestions, you're giving complete support to their growth in that area. And then what ends up happening next year is the person that led that one year, they'll move on and do something else. And then somebody in that professional development community who's become really passionate and expert about it, they'll lead it the next year. And so it really, really, it is, it's all about improving teaching and learning. Yeah. So let's talk about that action research project because you've hinted at it. But what I find really amazing, and I'm just going to try to summarize, and if I get it wrong, feel free to correct me. But what I understand is that the growth and development comes from the action research project, not necessarily from the feedback that, that they get in each actual observation. 
I would say there's a connection because I mean, there, there would certainly be times when you might offer a suggestion that might lead to that person choosing that next year as their action research project. But I, I would say definitely in alignment with what you're saying is that if we're going to work on something, like how many times you made contact with this student versus that student versus like bigger things going to be more impactful. Make sure that we're, we're saving our suggestions for something that's going to be more impactful and have a bigger chance to improve someone, the, the learning experience for students. And so what you're saying aligns completely with that. Yeah, absolutely. So this idea of an action research project, what does that actually look like? And how do you know if that is a worthwhile project to do, or if that just becomes another hoop to jump through. And I, I know what you're going to say that the things you do leading up to having that conversation is what makes it so that they actually do it for real and not as a hoop, but talk a little bit more about that project. Okay. So let me just say this. So like with everything with the reflective conversation, all the things that we talked about, those are all important things, but like using empathy and emotional intelligence, if we didn't use those things in our conversations with teachers, then I don't think that trust would truly get there. But as we do that and combine with all the other things, then over time, trust develops and then the whole community becomes a community of trust. And because I'm not rating someone, and then if we look at like the research that says that as soon as we rate, they stop taking risks, when that's been taken out of it, I'm not rating their pedagogy, then they are more willing to look at that rubric at the beginning of the year and rate themselves and then make a decision about that. And then, you know, of course, during each monthly professional development meeting, we go step in for a few minutes just to watch what's going on. But we even help the teachers with their action research goal if they ask for it. But we always try and compare it to have to compare their teaching with a new area, like to something they'd done maybe the unit before or the same unit. There's factors related to the students from each class year being. But when you're having conversations and it's all in a positive framework and the teachers are working together in these professional development communities in one of these pedagogical areas, it's it's not top-down watching. It's just them there together. And of course, there's a moderate piece of accountability because we do walk in and check in on them if we're not leading one of them. But it's just, I just find that teachers embrace the opportunity to improve when it's about them. I mean, are there exceptions? Are there a tiny percentage of teachers that are more set in their ways? And yeah, but then you have to work through wherever that might go with those teachers. But in my experience, 90 plus percent of teachers genuinely want to get better. I mean, they got into teaching because they care about kids and want to make a difference in their lives. So when you provide these opportunities in a situation that's really for them and about them, they embrace it. In my experience, that has been the case as well, because they're eager to be their best and they're not so eager to jump through some hoops and just do the bare minimum. Like they really want to do great. They really want to leave an impact on kids' lives. And that's, I think, a good way to to support that process. I'm going to jump back on to just the, to what we were just talking about. Just one, because I want to add one more thing to it because I think it's important. Is if we think about most models of professional where we're putting on a school-wide thing, this is differentiated, right? To each teacher gets to choose and they get to choose what they want to do to evaluate. And so I think that also helps them embrace the growth more than just having a standard one-size-fits-all. And not that there aren't some times where it's really great to have a standard one-size-fits-all too. I want to talk about that professional development piece because that is important. So when people are creating their own professional development, what are the results that you see from them choosing their own path and doing that, that kind of work themselves? Well, first thing I'm going to say is you see empowerment. 
and you see teacher efficacy because they are having a chance to do it on their own. And so we always tell our teachers that as long as you're looking at it and, and taking chances and taking risks, even if you don't get the results that you want every time, because like I've had teachers, I can remember one math teacher where she like the first time she did a unit and compared it to the year before, she saw about a grade increase. And then the second time when it's like the next unit when she did it, she saw, and it was a, using a Kagan, it was some Kagan cooperative learning and, and adding that into her math practice, which is great. And she didn't see any improvement. And so she was really concerned about that. And then we talked and we went back and we looked at, she wanted to show me all her lessons. And then when we did, we saw she'd only used the cooperative learning practices one time in the whole unit, where in the grouping before, she'd use it almost every single class. And so, because, so one of the things that I'll say that we talked about the first two questions, but one of the other questions that we ask is, how are things going with your action research project? And so, because we get to talk about that, every reflective conversation, that allowed for this conversation to take place as well. And then when she realized that, then the third unit, she added it back in again, and then she saw that one great improvement again. And so, I, I, I'd love to tell you that every single teacher gets that every time, but they certainly feel empowered to take risk in a safe environment and we just want to be get more and more and more risk-taking and innovation and creativity. Yeah. And, and this is the drum that I've been beating over the past several years that if we do that with kids also, we see the same results. And for some reason in education, we think that that kind of thing is totally appropriate for the adults, but that the kids still have to have direct instruction and every lesson planned out and we can't leave it up to them to take their own ownership and feel more empowered in their own learning. And that's, that's a disconnect that I haven't quite figured out how to wrestle with. Do you have any perspective on that? Well, and I'd even say that, I, I mean, certainly with what you we're talking about, we're talking about encouraging that creativity and innovation, but certainly we've even had examples earlier in our conversation about times when that wasn't really embraced. Like, no, you're going to follow these rules or you look at these other things that matter for good thing. And so I'd, I'd say the same problem exists with adults as, as well as with students. That's such a good question. And I'm not, I don't think I'd have definitive answers, but I would say if we can create an environment where teachers embrace risk-taking and they know it's okay to try and fail. And then like to me, when a teacher tr can try something new and it bombs, and then they can even talk to their kids about something not going well, but that's the way it goes sometimes. And so next lesson, I'm going to try this and we'll see how that goes. Like what amazing role modeling is that for our students? And so maybe top down, and I certainly wouldn't equate it to trickle down economics because that's not a very good analogy, but in the sense that if a teacher gets to experience that and know that it's okay and role model that, then hopefully we can get that more into their practice too, as they're more willing to embrace risk-taking innovation on their own. That's exactly exactly how I see it. A couple episodes ago in episode 381, I talked with Joellen Killian, who's like the master at instructional coaching. And we had a very similar conversation that if we can show the adults how it feels to have that empowerment and ability to take risks, then they can in turn pass that along to their children as well. And I think that that is a really key point also. So I appreciate that. And that professional development piece Professional development is really just learning as an adult in your profession. And there 
the similarities to what kids can learn. I mean, teachers hate it when we do a stand and deliver professional development and they don't have time to do the things that they want. And it's all determined by one person, the principal who they think is out of touch or whatever. But, you know, they, they have a hard time equating that back to what they're doing in the classroom. And this is a good opportunity to say, you know, what if you had an action research program for your students and they got to yeah. make some decisions about what they want to learn and things like that. So that's that's a lot of the stuff that I'm working on is helping um, teachers see those opportunities for kids driving their own learning and how that changes things because it truly does. And it's something that we don't want to to overlook. And how powerful when we're doing that on both levels, right? With the teachers and with the students. And then when we're helping students to become those creative innovator, risk-taking innovators, and we create the conditions of safety where they can allow themselves to work through uncomfortable vulnerability feelings to do it anyway, how are we not creating successful adults? Exactly. That's, that's huge. All right. Now I'll ask the last question, which is, what is one thing that a principal could do this week to be a transformative principal, Craig? I think trust your teachers and build build relationships of care for them so you can create conditions where they feel like it's safe to take risks and know they can fail and still be embraced by you as their principal. Okay, so what does a principal do this week to make that happen, Craig? What did you do this week to make that happen? These are very strange times for that to be sure. I would say they start doing short observations and look for strengths and ask teachers in the reflective conversation, what were you doing to help students learn? And if you had to do over again, what would you do differently? And then just point out the strengths and just leave it at that as a start. And then just keep repeating that process. And that's going to be more than a week, but you keep repeating that process and that trust will develop no matter what type of principle you've been before with time and consistency. Yeah, very good. I I think that's absolutely the case. Once again, if you want to learn more about his book, Trust-Based Observations, or want to start implementing this in your own school, you can go to trustbased.com and you can follow Craig on Twitter at trustbasedcraig on Twitter. Thank you again, Craig, for being part of Transformative Principle. Thank you, Jethro. It was a blast. Thank you to our valued partner, John Cat Educational. If you are a leader looking to make transformative change by providing yourself and your leaders and teachers with professional development that is research-based and rigorous, yet easy to digest and full of practical strategies, check out the latest publications from John Cat. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com to find information on bulk orders or learn much more in our show notes. You can also use the code TRANSFORMATIVE to save a bundle at us.johncatbookshop.com. School principals across the country are using TeachFX's virtual PD and job-embedded feedback to boost student engagement during COVID. With TeachFX, teachers get eight times more feedback and generate 144% more student engagement on average in a school year with no additional work for school leaders or teachers. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash principal. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments, 
You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E.